Hey friends, your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with another episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this show, we talk about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. You can become a patron of Sly Flourish by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. Patrons get access to all kinds of cool exclusive material and previews of things that I'm doing in the future. But most importantly, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much for your support. Today, it's been a nice, quiet week. There hasn't been a lot of crazy announcements. There hasn't been a lot of crazy drama. There's not a ton of news, and I'm kind of okay with that. And I don't expect there will be a bunch of news over the next couple of weeks. In particular, there's no like major Kickstarters going on. If you noticed the last couple of episodes, I've had a ton of Kickstarters. I don't have any Kickstarter previews today. I also don't have a product preview today. I don't, I'm not ready uh, with a product preview, so we're not going to be doing a product preview today. And instead, we're just going to cover a few things, and then we're going to dive into mostly patron questions. I do have a D&D tip, though, that I'm going to offer today that we'll, we'll talk a little. For those of you who backed the Lazy DMs Companion, I get one of the big questions I've been getting a lot is, when is the Backer Kit survey coming out? So it's going to come out early next week. The survey is good. We had to wait. There's a lot of like transfer of funding. Kickstarter has to get the funding from backers. Then they have to wire it to me. I have to get the money. I then have to give a big chunk of that over to backer kit and the backer kit has to receive that. And every one of these things takes days to weeks. So that's why it's taken nearly not quite a month, but like 20 days until everything was set. We did build the backer kit survey though. So it's all ready to go. And we're going to give it one last good look because we're passing it to a lot of people. So we want to make sure it's right. So we're going to give it one last good look Monday afternoon, Eastern and myself and Chris from Nord Games are going to be looking it over. And then we're going to send out what they call a smoke, which I guess is random, a random sample of people. And that way we can see, are there any major problems or concerns or questions or anything like that before we send it to everybody else? And then it goes out to everybody else. So I expect certainly next week, the, the backer kit survey will go out and people can order what they want. If you did not get in on the Kickstarter, you can pre-order and that will be handled with the backer kit as well. If you go to the pre-order page, I will link it here in Twitch. And it will be in the show notes below. So if you didn't get in on the Lazy DM Companion, but you're interested in the Lazy DM's Companion, this is your chance to pre-order pre-order the Companion. So that's the big news in the world of the Lazy DM's Companion. I'm working really hard on this book. I'm spending a lot of time. Uh, last week was drafting lots of maps, which are kind of cool. This week, I was listening to my friends, uh, Sean Merwin and Teos Abadia on the Mastering Dungeons podcast. This is, I think, my favorite D&D podcast. And I really like listening to it. I know both of them. They're both friends of mine. So it's really nice to listen to like two of my friends talking about D&D for an hour every week is really cool. And they are diving deep into Fizban's Treasury of Dragons. And I've talked about Fizban's here on the show too. And I uh, enjoyed it a lot. And But I don't do like real deep dives like these two do deep dives. So they really dive in and really talk about it. And they have some very interesting takes that are worth uh, reading up. They are worth listening to. They they talk a lot about the lore and what it means for the lore and how Watsi is wrapping the lore, a new creation lore. Sean Merwin brings up like anytime you create a, anytime you start a, a creation myth, myth you, you have to make it true across the board and big questions about is this a marketing thing? Is this their reason? Like we want a Shardalon to be in every world. It occurred to me while I was listening to it that 
the idea of dragons having echoes across different worlds, that like a Shardalon can exist both in Greyhawk and Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms. Does anybody actually want that other than Watsy? Like Watsy, Wizards of the Coast, the company that makes D&D, they want it because they want to be able to put dragons like a Shardalon into every world. They talk about how they want to have the Tomb of Horrors in every world. Tomb of Horrors was originally a Greyhawk world, and now you can have it in Forgotten Realms, right? So they say, well, it's dragon magic. It's these echoes in the dragon magic that allows these things. They're creating like a multiverse idea. But we don't play in multiple worlds. Like, I don't need to... If I play in multiple worlds, I don't usually have the same thing in both worlds. So as a DM, I'm not likely to run a Greyhawk game and have Tomb of Horrors in the Greyhawk game and then also run a Forgotten Realms game and have Tomb of Horrors there too. Or a Shardalon, right? Or or Dragotha, right? The Dragotha, the both of the Dracolich, right? Dragotha, I think, is in is mentioned in White Plume Mountain, which is technically in Greyhawks. Can you have Dragotha in multiple worlds? Like, maybe, but do I need, do I care? Like, I can just move Dragotha wherever I need to move Dragotha as a DM. I don't need to have a, a, a multiverse mythos to support that. But Watsy might think that they do, and so that's why they do stuff like this. My my answer is always like, well, you take what works and you you toss what doesn't. So whatever mythos they come up with, whatever stuff they have in Fizzbands, we get to choose whether or not we're going to bring it into our game or not. And there's a little bit of like, yeah, but what's the default D&D world? And I think that really only matters for things like Adventures League. And Adventures League goes off in all their directions anyway. So I don't think it really, at the end of the day, good stories will stick around and bad ones will probably fall away and we'll just forget that they ever existed. And, and every version has had their own creation mythos as Sean and Teos talk about. So it doesn't really matter. But anyway, I thought that was an interesting take. They also started talking about the class options and they brought up the point that the new Dragonborn, the new Dragonborn races are just far and above better than the one that's in the player's handbook. And did they, are they overwriting stuff that's in the player's handbook? And I, I was originally concerned about this and I made complaints about this and I offered my opinions on a couple of different social media sites and got beaten down from it. When the play tests of the class option stuff came out, this is before Tasha's came out, and there were things in there where I said, there, it's one thing to offer replacement abilities that where as a fighter, you can replace your normal fighter thing that you have in the player's book with this optional one that's in Tasha's. It's something else when you offer something completely new and better. And the example is aim with a rogue normally as, with a cunning action. I think in back in the play test, it was just aim was added to cunning action. Aim is the idea that if a rogue doesn't move on their turn, they have advantage on the attack, essentially, right? They're, ta they're, they're taking careful aim to make to, to get advantage on the attack. And I think it's a bonus action to do so. And my point was like, when you put that in a book like Tasha's, now a Tasha rogue is just better than a non-Tasha rogue. If you have characters that have just the player's handbook are now not as powerful as characters that don't of a particular class like the rogue. And I thought about that for Tasha's and I made my statement and I made my, I put my advice in the survey and this stuff ended up there anyway, which means that stuff that's in Tasha's just makes characters better. A lot of the stuff that's in Tasha's just makes characters better. Not just that they have alternate options, but that the options, in some cases, they just get a new thing. Clerics can use their channel divinity to get spell slots back. You have that with Tasha's, you don't have that if you don't have Tasha's. The same thing is true with Fizzbands, that in Fizzbands, you have the Dragonborn in Fizzbands, and they are just plain better. They get more uses of their breath weapon. The breath weapon does more damage at higher levels. In many cases, the breath weapon has another kicker that the original breath weapons of the Dragonborn and the player's handbook don't have, which means a Fizzban Dragonborn is better than a player's handbook Dragonborn. And does that just overwrite stuff? I, I guess like I've, whatever my opinion doesn't matter and they're going to go, they're going to do what they do. And they did. And now we have it. And so what does that mean? 
And I don't think it particularly matters because it, it doesn't matter until we start looking at like D&D Beyond. I think it really only matters when you have something like D&D Beyond where the site that your players are using has all of those options available if they want them. Now, as a DM, if they're sharing a campaign, I can turn off I can turn on and off certain options so they wouldn't be available. And that would be okay. I still go back to, yeah, there's lots of different things that are happening in these accessory books, but we get to choose what we bring in and we choose what we don't. And the big question is, what does D&D Beyond do? And, and because when you're using an online tool like D&D Beyond, then it's a question of what happens there. And we're going to talk about that. One of the patron questions today talks about that. So I wanted to offer up a DM tip. This is something I've been thinking about. Uh, I thought about it, if you recall, last week, I did a preview of Mjorkberg Ferratory. And one of the things that Mjorkberg Ferratory had was a one-page monster generator with a bunch of, like, three different tables you could roll on to generate a cool, thematic, dark-themed monster. And I was like, how cool is it that you can have an RPG where, the like, building a monster takes only a couple of pages or one page, and it's mostly thematic, and then you just build the flavor on top of it. And I was thinking, like, how, you know, I always think about, like, how do I do that in 5e? And it occurred to me that you can improvise a monster like that by using the guidelines from the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's on page 274 of the Dungeon Master's Guide, but we'll go to we'll go to the uh, Beyond one. Here I talk about how reliance on D&D Beyond, and then I go to Beyond. So it's in chapter 9 under Create a Monster, right? And it has a bunch of steps for making a monster. But it's got this big table in here, right? Monster statistics by challenge rating. I did a tweet about this recently, and I asked how many people use it, and it's about one in three DMs use this table. So that's not none, right? You can pick a challenge rating of a monster, and then it has like generic statistics for that monster that you can just apply. And that's pretty great. Can you just use this table? to make a monster. And I think you can. There's a couple of tricky bits. Really, there's, I think there's really only one tricky bit. And that's the damage per round has to, you have to figure this out. I don't know why they made this a variant that a challenge rating 17 monster does between 105 and 110. Pick a number, right? This is, the variance is so low here. It'd be one thing if it's 100 to 150, but the variance is so low. I don't know why they bother having two different numbers for it. But you have to turn this damage into attacks. You have to say like, well, how am I going to split that up? And if in this case, I'd say, okay, we're going to take 110 and I'm going to split it up among four attacks, right? And that way I can, if I'm going to make a challenge rating 17 monster, I can basically spread the damage out to four different attacks and then figure out what the themes of those attacks are. So the cool bit is if I want to just generate a monster from scratch, I can use nothing but this. And then in my head, I can just add theme and flavor. A lot of DMs want a lot of mechanics and crunchiness to to monsters. They feel like if you describe something that a monster does, it doesn't actually do anything unless there's mechanics tied to it. And I don't think that's true. And I think we can do a lot by, by thematically flavoring a monster, right? By using this, by using something like this and then adding our own description to it when we run it can matter a lot, particularly if you use higher damage always scares. So I think like you can actually do a fair bit of improvisation using this table, but there's actually a couple of easier ways to. So over on the blog of holding, they have the D&D monster manual on a business card. And uh, the author for this did a bunch of research looking at actual monsters in the monster manual and tried to figure out what the monster curves were and came up with this thing called the, the monster manual on a business card, which is a single table that basically scales up with monsters if you want to build monsters on the fly. And it's close enough. And if you look at the math that this puts out, the math is actually pretty close to what's in that DMG table without having to have the DMG table. That's really cool. But I think it can be even easier, right? And to me, and this is what I'm offering up in the Lazy DMs Companion too, that if you want to build any monster, 
there's only about four numbers you need to know, four little equations that you can keep in your head that will build just about any monster of any challenge rating. And those four equations are for the armor class and difficulty class of a monster, it's 12 plus half CR. Start with 12 and then add half their challenge rating, and that's roughly their armor class and DCs of spells. Real straightforward. Hit points are basically 15 times their challenge rating. If you have a challenge rating 10 monster, it's got about 150 hit points, right? If you have a challenge 20 monster, it's about 300 hit points. It might be a little bit low. You could increase it a little bit. 20, the problem with 20 is 20 is too high. For 200, 200 hit points at CR 10 is, is an awful lot. CR 5 would be what, 75 hit points? Attack and, attacks and proficiencies, right? So anything that they're proficient in, if they're proficient in a skill or they're proficient in a saving throw, this is equal to, to three plus half their challenge rating. That kind of accounts for proficiency and statistics all in one and then damage output the damage output of a particular monster is seven times challenge rating you know seven times cr or 2d6 and if you're making a big monster and you're spreading out the attacks you can basically remove every seven damage you remove you can add 2d6 if you want to create dice equations for it so that works out uh cranky head says a cr1 would be 15 hit points that sounds low it doesn't work really well at low challenge ratings the cr one quarter one half and stuff like that doesn't challenge doesn't isn't real low but i think it would probably still work they just go down a little fast that a cr1 doing seven damage is also a little low when you compare it to uh, a thug thug does more damage than that let's see if we look at the damage here so the damage is 10 if we use the business card you can see that it basically does a little bit more damage paul hughes thank you paul hughes is the writer for the blog of holding yes excellent thank you for that yeah Challenge ratings like one eighth, one quarter, one half, and one do more damage. It's really when you get to, to these, you know, higher than CR one, uh, where things start to play out. But it's good enough, right? It's good enough. But I, I go back to, okay, that's cool. So you can build a monster. So I could take that two-page thing from Mjorkberg and I could whip up a monster with it in in very little time. But there's actually a better hierarchy. There's a reason why I don't typically recommend this. And that's because there's actually easier things you can do. So I, I like to think of this of the hierarchy of monster customization from easiest to hardest, from laziest to the most work. And, and there's basically, you know, I have six layers. There's probably different layers in here. But like the first one is better than making up a monster is just use monsters that are, use the monster manual. Start with the monster manual, but then there's also a whole wide range of other monster books that you can use instead. Those are probably going to be better than something you're going to whip up on your own. So start with just running a monster that already exists. Obviously, the easiest way to do monster customization, because you're not customizing anything at all. Just throw in an ogre, right? If you want an ogre, take an ogre. Then the next one is reskinning monsters from the monster manual. In this case, you just describe it differently. You don't change any of the mechanics at all. You just say, I have, you, you go into a bar and there's a really big burly thug or a really big burly, big burly tough guy. He's actually an ogre, but we're just calling him a big tough guy. Really easy. Yeah, Gandhian says, I love reskinning monsters. It's my main go-to method. It should be everybody should. We're going to come to advice in a minute. I think it's a really great, easy way to have an infinite, almost an infinite variety of monsters is I've got a dozen monster books in my room with me right now. I don't need to make a new monster. I don't need to build one from scratch using a table. I can just go grab a monster and I can call it anything I want. So reskinning monsters from the monster manual is the next easiest way. And it's a huge and flexible power tool. That's a real big, reskinning is a super powerful tool. Then you can start to tweak the mechanics by adding features. So if you have your, you want to have a ghoul ogre, right? A, a giant ghoul that's bigger than a other one. You take the ogre stat block, you add on the, the ghoul 
characteristics, right? Take some characteristics from one monster and, and add it to another monster and you've got yourself a thing. Or just add a feature. You want a fire, you go to the, you're down in the pits and you want to have a bigger version of a fire thing. You take the ogre stat block and he does fire damage, right? And he has fire resistance. You can, there's so many ways to just add a traitor to a monster. And that changes the mechanics up enough that it's interesting. And then uh, that goes along with reskinning. Then the next one is mashing up two monsters together. I actually have a YouTube video uh, that I shot about this. So in mashing up two monsters, you take two full stat blocks and you basically take a, a fair number of traits from one stat block and apply it to the other stat block. So that the, the ghoul ogre is actually a better example of, of how to do that. Right, mash up two monsters together. Take two monsters, take whichever one is more complicated, that's the base one. And then you take any characteristics from the simpler version and add it to the more complicated version you have, a, you have an example. And you can make anything. You can make stone giant liches this way. You can make all different kinds of, all different kinds of stuff uh, using this stat block mashup technique. And that's a little harder because you're kind of mashing two stat blocks together. And then only number five is where I'd say like actually go through the math here and, and use the quick statistics to build up a monster on the fly. If you don't want to reskin something, if you don't want to mash up two stat blocks, if you just, you're for whatever reason, you're on the spot and you just want to build a monster, you could just grab either the table from the Dungeon Master's Guide or use this equation or use the Monster Manual on a business card and whip up some stats on the fly. And I think you can do that. To me, that's the fifth you're still making a monster. So even though it's simple, you're still making a monster rather than using an existing stat block. And then only finally is build a monster from scratch. And my argument is don't do this unless somebody's paying you. It takes real work to make a monster. And you're probably, it's gonna take a lot of play testing. And it's gonna take a lot of thought and a lot of design to make a monster from scratch. Don't bother. There's so many monsters and reskinning is such a powerful tool. You really, I don't think very many people need to build a monster from scratch. Even boss monsters. Go find another boss monster that exists and reskin it because they've been tested before. Go get the monster books from 2C Gaming and use their stuff. I think that helps a lot. So that's kind of my hierarchy of monster customization. But I do like this idea of can you use the monster manual on a business card or can you build it up? I also think like you really don't need to start building your own monsters until they're higher challenge ratings. So the question about a CR1 is probably too low. I have so many CR1 stat blocks. I don't need to make another CR1 stat block. But if I'm making a CR10 or 12 or something like that, there's not a lot of higher level monsters compared to lower level monsters in any of the monster books. So I might be better off whipping something up using these stats than I would be reskinning. But the funny thing is I hardly ever do this. I almost always reskin and, and reskinning works so much better. It works so much better for me to take an existing stat block. I do this probably number three, two and three are my go-tos that I will add new features to a monster or change the features that a monster has on the fly. But I have an existing stat block that I start with. I'll do it with just about anything. That's kind of the, 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 the hierarchy of needs. Um, you know, Sly Flourish's hierarchy of needs. Do you have a good way to keep track of monsters you like from all your different monster books? In my head, yeah, there's not great. And I default to the monster manual as often as possible. I think that there are so many monster books out there. I default to the monster manual as often as possible. And then on occasion, when I have a particular area where I think like it would be really cool to bring in a lot of monsters from a different source, I'll use that source. So an example is when the characters were going to a Netherese spire in Rime of the Frostmaiden, I said, I want to have really different things here than they find normally. And I grabbed Toma Beast 2 from Cobalt Press. And I, all the monsters that I picked for that whole area came from the Toma Beast 2. And that worked really well. They, like, players were, they, and Toma Beast 2 monsters hit really hard. They're scary monsters. So that worked really well. So I'll do that. I, I did the same thing when I was, when the characters went to the city of making, uh, and there was another city, Esten. They went to a city called Esten. And in Esten was a 
city that had fallen during the day of mourning in Eberron. And so there was lots of, and I wanted to have lots of Warforgy kind of stuff. So I grabbed Arcana of the Ancients by Monty Cook Games, and I filled out that whole place with monsters from Arcana of the Ancients. And that worked really well. These monsters are very different. Nobody had any idea what these things were. And they'd face them and they're like, well, it's physically very big and it's got lots of blades. That's probably really bad, right? So I used a lot of monsters from Arcana of the Ancients for my Eberron game, and that fit very well. So I, I don't, I tend not to have a directory of my favorite monsters across books. I'll tend to use a book for a particular area of my game and, and stick to that book. It works really, it works really well. I'm going to go through November patron, patron questions. We're going to spend a good deal of time today talking about patron questions. And one of the things that uh, I want to make clear, and this came up because I did a tweet this past week and I got a lot of feedback on this tweet, is that like everything that I say Everything that I offer in my books, everything that I offer in on Twitter, everything that I offer here, these are just me sharing my experiences or the experiences of other DMs that I've heard from. I'm not, I, I try rarely to say you should, I probably fail all the time, but I try to not say things like you should do X or you should do Y or, or X or Y are the way, right? That Because there isn't a way. And all we're doing is we're all sharing our experiences together. One of the great things about about both D&D and the internet, right? like everything going on the internet, is how much we can share our experiences together. How many things we can try out with probably more than a million DMs. We can share all this information and it's great. But then when it matters, we go and sit at our game with our five friends and we run it. So what we run with our five friends at our game, that's what matters. But then we can go and share what our experiences were and we learn things and we try things out. And I want to make sure, because I got a fair number of people watching the stream, I got a fair number of people watching the video, is I don't think that this is the right thing all the time. I'm just offering thoughts. I'm offering advice. So the, the tweet was a funny one, because the, the, what I said in the tweet was essentially along the lines of avoid having DMPCs or tag along NPCs. And the, the reality is there are times where you do want and uh, tag along NPCs or, car or DMPCs. So I had some people that said, what about with Barandar and Bing? And I'm like, okay, yeah, one-on-one -on -one games, I of course say you should have a DMPC, that DMPCs work really well for one-on-one -on -one games. And there's always circumstances like, and then what is an NP what counts as an NPC? Does a and sentient sword count as an NPC? Those are NPCs I think that are fantastic. I was talking about like specific, like I was thinking Tomb of Annihilation where you have half your group or sidekicks and it's just overwhelming. And then DMs having conversations with themselves among NPCs to NPCs, stuff like that. What was interesting is I had a few replies that were like, this is the worst advice ever, or this is the worst advice you've ever given. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not true, right? I know I've given advice worse than that. And I'm sure I can come up with advice worse than that. There's, I've had a lot of bad advice that I've given over the years. I give some good advice. I give some bad advice, but who cares what I say, right? Like if it's wrong, it's wrong. So the idea, like, you know, I, and I think I blame the Twitter algorithm. I think like tweets that get controversy are put in front of people because I noticed that some of the people that were replying to it don't follow me, which means they were getting it from somebody else. And it's because the Twitter algorithm is like, hey, you want to check out this jackass's tweet? And like, I hate that guy. But my point with all of this is like when I'm writing a tweet, they often come out declarative. They often say things like devoid DMPCs. And and the reality is like, I'm just offering a thought. And I'm like, I don't even agree with my stuff a lot of the time. Right. Like I have advice that I don't agree with all the time. I think that's important when we're going into the Patreon questions is because this isn't sage-like wisdom that I'm offering here. This is just my shared experiences, right? These are the experiences that I've picked up. They're experiences I've heard from other DMs. I try really hard to listen to other DMs and, and listen to what people are saying and read what people are, what experiences other people have so that I can understand 
the different ideas and and I try out lots of different things and I learn stuff all the time. My my system is constantly evolving based on things that I'm learning. My main point is I wanted to say these are experiences that I'm sharing, not advice that I'm offering, right? Across everything that I say. With that, let's get into some patron questions. Half the show for patron questions. How about that? We're coming at the end of the month too. So I'm probably, I'm going to, if I have patron questions left over at the end of the month, I am going to do a special show on a different night where I just go through patron questions, period. And I might make that an exclusive video just for patrons. First question, Chris S asks, the PHB, DMG, and MM are the core books. We also have setting books and adventure books. Then we have books like Tasha's, Xanathar, Volo, Mordenkainen, and I'm adding Van Richten's, and now Fizzbands. Of these last group of, really six, which do you see having the biggest impact on the game? Uh, Good question. And this gets into the whole conversation about what you bring to the game and what you don't, what are optional, what's not. And I think from an impact perspective, an impact can be good or bad. I think it's pretty safe to say Xanathar's had the biggest impact. Tasha's had the next biggest impact. Mordenkainen's and Volo's had impact because of the the new races that they brought in. And then things like Fizzbands and Van Richten's Guide, because they have both race options and they have other things. So anything that changes the, the, the player side significantly has going to have a big impact and for good and for ill i think that having more options i think the subclass system of D is one of the reasons it's as popular and as powerful as it is because offering up subclasses early on in a character's career at third level and making it so that it's they have many subclasses adds a lot of legs to a game that would otherwise be pretty simplistic if you thought about it so i think that the the, the idea that people can get into D quickly with a first level character and you fighter, cleric, rogue, mage, whatever. And then as they grow, as they expand, they get to the next level and they can choose subclasses and they can choose real basic ones like the champion fighter or the life cleric. But then you have, there's how many different cleric subdomains are there now? Dozens. And those scale pretty well. Like it's not a ton of extra stuff to add a new subclass and to make characters in very different ways. In all of this time, there has been only one new class. That's pretty profound. Just the Artificer is the only new class. And I think that's fascinating, right? I think they could have made the Artificer a subclass of the Wizard, perhaps, but maybe they're overloading Wizards. Some people are like, shouldn't they have more classes in this? And I'm like, probably not, right? Because that really adds complexity to the game. But if instead you say that we can add slight amounts of complexity, these sort of optional bits of, of complexity by adding new subclasses. That's really powerful. So in that way, I think Xanathar's had, and Xanathar's was the first one. It's been out the longest. It's used the most. So that's why I say, I think Xanathar's has probably had the biggest impact. Tasha's has had a lot of big impact though. And I think the big thing that Tasha's does are the new class options, both in the flexible attribute model and then in the new class stuff. And then it also has these pile of new subclasses. Tasha's is also my example of, and this is going to sound harsh, when I felt like I can't trust Watsy to put out stuff that I can just throw right into my game anymore. And I go, I'm going to pick on the same two things I picked on before, which is the Peace Cleric and the Twilight Cleric. And so it's had a big impact. But I think to me, it's the, it's the first time when I'm going to say, I've now got to pay more attention to what we're bringing to the game. And I don't think it's the only one, because I think there's other, what's the wizard chronomancer kind of build? And there's other weird builds out there than just Twilight and Peace that come from other sources, right? Like I've never paid a lot of attention to the sources that are in the Magic the Gathering books, the Wild Mount, the Wild Mount ones, I haven't really picked on those. So I think that there's other ones, but I think now there's enough new stuff out there. There's enough wide range of stuff out there that we need to pay more attention about what we're letting into the game 
and what we're not as DMs. We still have all of that authority, though. But again, we can pay all the attention in the world to what's going on in the world. But when it comes down to it, we get to decide what we're bringing into our game. Certainly on DM stuff, we get to pick that. But then also on player stuff during our sessions here, we can say, here are the books that are allowed. Here are the builds that are allowed. Here are the builds that are not allowed. And I do that now with my current games. My Witchlight game, I'm going to say no, no Twilight, no Peace Clare. I think that... From an impact perspective, I think that's where things came out. And what does this mean for the future? Who knows? Like just along the lines of advice, I offer experience. I offer shared experiences, not advice in the same way. Any of my predictions are probably going to be wrong. Yeah. So that is the, uh, on, on, on impact of, of books. Nicholas P says, Hey there, I'm looking for, I'm looking at stepping out of my comfort zone and offering a game at an FLGS, a friendly local game shop for those that sign up. If you had to boil down the most important and crucial things for a DM to know ahead of time, what would your list be? That's a really good, it's a great question. And I, I applaud you for getting out of your comfort zone and playing for people you don't know. I highly recommend it. I don't do it that much, but I think that there's a fantastic way to grow as a DM and see lots of players and learn experiences and stuff like that. And so that's outstanding. Probably uh, my, the biggest piece of advice I offer, I, I was thinking about this today, so I put up some notes. Start off with your safety tools. You might want to describe them before they show up. If they sign up and you have a chance to talk to them ahead of time, you can do some of this work ahead of time. But it's worth reiterating just is, you know, what's your version of the X card? What lines and veils? That sort of thing. This is something that like Baldwin Games and all of the major, all of the major organized play programs are have wired and their DMs have to do it, right? And I think it's important, right? I think it's really important that when you're playing with people you don't know, you want to know what kind of game they want to have and what kind of game they don't want to have. And I think particularly if you think that there's any material that's inside your inside the adventure that you think might be questionable, ask. Here are some of the things we're doing. If you have any specific lines we don't want to cross, please mention them. Uh, and if there's things you'd rather have on off screen, and by the way, if you're uncomfortable, just say, can we pause for a minute? I'd really rather not do that. I like pause for a minute instead of the X card, but that's me. Whatever safety tools you're using, you probably want to bring them up. Next most important thing is stay on time right and this means managing time through the whole game i have a whole video where i just talk about managing time and it's so crucial for one single session games or organized play games because time is usually very limited and you don't want to run late generally you don't want to run late i wouldn't run i wouldn't suggest running late in any game right if you're scheduled to go from 7 to 10 stay to 7 to 10 don't go to 11 right i'm sure lots of people do and we're in the flow so it's really hard to stay focused, but you, you know, set a timer and, and time every part of the game, know where you want to be at which part of your game and be ready to cut. And this is the other part. Be ready to cut from the middle. Don't cut from the end. If you've got a big conclusion to your adventure, make sure you set yourself like 45 minutes to an hour of the end of your adventure to run that conclusion because it's going to take a while and you want that to be fun. And I've been in many games where the DMs weren't managing their time. And at the very end said, I'm sorry, we're out of time. You don't get to fight the black dragon. And you're like, oh my God, why? So timing. And I think like if three of my tips here are about timing, right? Cut from the middle, leave 45 minutes for the boss fight, take breaks and ask for feedback. So yesterday I had the opportunity to, to play in a really, really fun Feywild adventure run by the DM Matt Lane. Matt Lane is a is an organized play DM. I've played with him now a few times and he's a fantastic DM. He's so relaxed. He's so easygoing and he's there to have a good time and he's there to help you have a good time. And even in a two hour game, he didn't necessarily need to call for a break in a two hour game, but he did anyway. He's like, you know, let's just reset for a minute. And he's like, by the way, is everybody having a good time? You're enjoying what's going on? You're enjoying where it's going? Any feedback, right? In the middle of the game, he did a quick, hey, how are things going? Really good, good idea. So take breaks. And if you're playing with people you haven't played with before, 
ask, hey, everybody doing okay? You guys enjoying it? What have you enjoyed most so far? What are you looking forward to in the rest of the adventure? You can do like a tiny little bit of stars and wishes, right? A little bit of stars and wishes. What's the thing you, what's something you've really enjoyed so far in the adventure? And what's something you want? What's something you're hoping to see? And you might not go like around the table. You might just open it up to the table. And if people want to bring it up, they can bring it up. So that is what I would offer for running an organized play game. Session zero, you know, do a little bit of a session zero and timing and pacing, making sure that you're going to stay on time. Really important. Hey, Lord Gazuba is here. Uh, good morning. I always ask new players on a break if they're enjoying themselves. Yeah, really good, really good thing. You know what it does? Beyond just asking if they're enjoying themselves, it reminds them that they are enjoying themselves or that that's what the goal is. If they're stuck on something, it's an opportunity to go, what am I doing here? Oh, of course, I'm having fun. So it's a good reset question, even beyond the fact that you'll get feedback. It's reminding them, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to. Am I? Yeah, I am. I am having fun. It resets. Chris G says, I'm considering running an old school essentials campaign to introduce new green players to D&D as it seems to be a much simpler introduction to the game than 5e, which I have seen overwhelm new players. I was wondering if you've looked into old school essentials rules set by Necrotic Games and what your thoughts would be. Yes, uh, I have seen old school essentials. Yeah, it looks really good. I would offer the point that if you're going to be going to 5e, right, if your intent is to bring people into it, there are some things you can do in 5e to make it more old school and to make things a little bit simpler. There are actually a few simple things you can do to 5e, period, to dramatically de decrease its complexity, right? And they're all in the Dungeon Master's Guide. The Dungeon Master's Guide has all of these rules, just nobody bothers to ever read the Dungeon Master's Guide, but it's in there. And one of the things you can do is you can do either class-based or attribute-based or ability score-based proficiency instead of skills, right? Which is... Uh, certain classes have abilities that they are proficient in and any of the skill checks that they would do, any of the ability checks that they use that ability, they add their proficiency bonus. And that immediately takes that big skill list and gets rid of it. You just say a fighter is uh, uh, proficient in strength and constitution. They add their proficiency bonus to strength and constitution checks. So that means your, ability, your abilities are like the prime interface to the game at that point, which is much easier to hang on to than skills. You could also do a background-based one, which is essentially like if your character has a background, anything that is relating to that background, they can add their proficiency bonus to their ability check. So do I have the page number in the DMG? I don't, but it's in there. It's in the back under the toolkits, right? There's a lot of bunch, there's a whole ton of optional rules that talk about this kind of stuff. So that's one thing you can do to make it really simple. Another thing you can do to make it simple is you can apply, there's a few different optional rules that you can remove the optional feet rule. What do you mean feats? Getting rid of feats. Feats aren't optional. Yes, they are. Feats are a optional rule. So remove the feet optional rule and remove the multi-classing optional rule. And both of those two things are optional things that, that add complexity to the game. And that's a complexity many players really, so you don't always want to pull that out if your players are enjoying it. I would not do this in my game because my players love all that stuff. And my players are advanced players. They play for all the time. So they want that crunchiness and it doesn't bother me. We're good. But if you wanted to play like an old school version, get rid of multi-classing, get rid of feats, switch over to a proficiency, to an, an ability score proficiency or a class-based proficiency or background-based proficiency. And then third is stick to sixth level or less right? Have a cap at sixth level. There was a, there's a whole system for this in third edition. I forget what it was called, but essentially it just said like once third edition hits six, you cap it. And then any level increase over there is just a couple of hit points, a very limited thing. Yeah. Ragno of Arg says, doesn't D&D have a free basic rule set? They do epic six. That's what it's called. Thank you. Yeah. So you could just say, we're only playing with the basic D&D rules. We're not playing with the stuff that's, that's, that's out there. 
The basic rules for D&D have only four classes, cleric, fighter, rogue, and wizard, and they only have the races dwarf, elf, halfling, and human. They still have the skills, I think. They have ability scores. I think they still have skills. But you could do your you could simplify this with your with, by 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 tying it to by tying it to class or background. I think that can work really well. But the nice thing about these is they only have one build. And and so each class has a kind of a default build, right? Fighter has the champion build. The cleric has the life cleric. The wizard has like evoker, evoker wizard. Rogue has thief, right? There are, there are certain subclasses that are just like their default simplistic subclass. So as a DM, you could say, we're only going to play with those. As a DM working with a player who's new, you could say, stick to just picking the champion fighter for now. If you want to play old school essentials, go with the gods. It looks really cool. I love it. I've, I've read it. I think it'd be a really fun way to play D&D. If you're using it as a stepping stone into 5e, it might be easier to just start with 5e and then expand as they get more. I've seen brand new people pick up 5e. So they can get overwhelmed a little bit. I think the best way to deal with that is pre-gens where you're like, you have a copy and they have a copy and then you can teach them about skill checks and stuff. There's other ways to teach 5e that I think you can get to. And I love 5e. And I think 5e can have that old school feel. I just don't think they do because most people want to have all the bells and whistles that we were just talking about from the other books. So Chris G, I hope that answers your question. Donnie R says, I recently received feedback from one of my players asking for more challenging encounters. He has optimized his character to put out serious damage to the point where it could tear through encounters on his own. The other players are less optimized and have noticed them joking about just needing to survive until the optimized character's turn and the initial diversity so he can lay waste to whatever is in front of them. I found that if the encounter difficulty challenges the other PCs, the optimized character gets bored. My concern is that if I dial up the challenge the other way, it'll prove too deadly for the others. What would be a good way to address this? So this is a really good and hard question, right? There's not a great way. If all of your players were optimized, there's things you can do. If all of your players are not optimized, there's things you can do. When you have one character who's optimized and the other ones are not, th this is really, this is harder. Now, one interesting thing about this is usually... In 5e, it depends on the kind of optimization, but I've rarely found a character who's good at everything, right? So I've seen characters, a great weapon master paladin who can just hit and power attack and smite, and they can spike like 100 points of damage in a round pretty easily at like seventh level. Fighters with action surge. You have your crossbow, your crossbow expert sharpshooters, right? Who have like pairs of hand crossbows firing tons of arrows and doing out crazy amounts of damage. But those aren't great when you have a lot of monsters. They're good when you have one big one, but they're not a lot when you have a lot of monsters. So you can look at these, you can look at the, how the character is optimized. What are they really good at? Do they have a tremendously high armor class? Do they have really good uh, defense from damage spells? Do they, are they spiky with damage? Do they do really powerful crowd control? What is it that they're really good at? They're usually not good at everything. It's not one character who has a tremendously high AC, really good saving throws in every save, can crowd control a whole bunch of different things and can spike damage. There's, it's rare to see that they're good at everything. So what's the one thing they are good at? And the key is that you're not just saying, I'm going to counterman that. What's their glowing weak point, right? The, the champion paladin, not so great when you hit him with a particular type of mind affecting spell. Not so great when if he, he probably is immune to charm, but maybe dominate monster can't, will take him out. So there's usually like a glowing weak point on every character. There's almost always a saving throw that they're not proficient in.
so you, you can figure out what that going weak point is. So you do have a way to challenge them, but it's not about just poking that weak point every time. Instead, what you want to do is you're going to have to design your encounters. You know, the, so, so in many cases, let the story drive the encounter and let it go. But it's, so we're only talking about boss fights where you really want to have a challenging fight. Cause I don't, I'm not a subscriber in the idea that every fight should be a challenging fight. I think you should have easy fights. I think you should have story thematic fights. I think you should have fights where the characters way, you know, lay waste to hundreds of enemies. I think you should have all different kinds of battles, easy and hard. But when you're coming to a battle that you expect is going to challenge them, usually a boss fight, you want to do two things. You want to make sure that there is aspects of that battle that are going to challenge each character differently. And you want to give them parts of that battle that they're good at. So if you have a spiky damage dealer, make sure there's a monster out there that they're going to clearly want to spike that damage to. If they're really good at crowd control, give them lots of monsters to crowd control. This is a bit like thinking like a World of Warcraft encounter designer. If you look at World of Warcraft raids, they know you're going to do crowd control. So they add crowd control minions, right? They have functions in there that, that are good. If you have a character who's really good at diplomacy and skills, give them somebody to talk to in the fight. Let them have the almost bard's tale, right? Their, their battle isn't about stabbing the guy. It's about the perfect vocal verbal repost, right? You're going to have to spend some time building the encounter out to say, I want to challenge the glowing weak points of characters that are spiky, but I also want to give them something really to do. If you've got a paladin who's got a big shield, I have a friend and his favorite thing to do, he plays a paladin, he plays a heavy armor paladin with full plate armor and a shield, and he goes defensive all the time. And his goal is, I want to run up there and I want to block everybody. Well, give him something to block, right? Get, have a horde that's going to come and fall upon your enemies. And he's the bastion bashing him down and keeping that horde from hitting your backline guys. But then there's other things that are challenging the backline characters. So it's when the characters get uh, banishment. Then if you're going to have a battle where that's a boss fight, you're going to want to have something for them to banish, right? Like what are they going to be able to crowd control? What are they going to be able to get rid of so that they have, they can still use these abilities that are fun and they need to, because they'll get their asses kicked if they didn't. I had a fight with a very powerful boss monster in Rime of the Frostmaiden, and it was the boss monster who had legendary resistance and legendary actions. They knew she did. So they knew they weren't going to hit her with banishment, but then she had a powerful ally that was really dangerous and high hit point, high damage output ally but didn't have legendary resistance and they're like we got to banish that sucker and they banished it and like now we got to keep it banished while we're fighting her and it mattered and it helped so that's i think that's what i can offer on on this idea it is really hard when you have one character who's optimized and others that aren't and you're gonna have to do some special tuning the other one is maybe have a conversation with the player and say hey i love that you love your character as much as you do maybe we should go for something more well-rounded there's i'm not really going to be able to solve this situation it's harder to do because people don't want to give up their cool character if they're bored right and maybe they should try something new adam i says i've been working on an alternative magic system for 5e inspired by dungeon craft videos about getting rid of spell slots but dungeon craft by the way uh, professor dungeon master did a really good video about old school essentials from the previous question so if you want to see his video on old school essentials i highly recommend it uh, and talks a lot about how to change 5e and to make it a, a more uh, old school kind of game i've been working on an alternative magic system for 5e inspired by dungeon craft videos about getting rid of spell slots from your Frostmaiden one pager, it's clear you have a handle on one, keeping 5e supplements concise, and two, getting useful creations out to the community. Could you please speak or write about the following question? What are the Sly Flourish guidelines for creating concise yet helpful supplements and or alternative systems for 5e? I don't think I'm going to give you an answer. You're going to really ask yourself 
if you need to come up with a new system. Why are you coming up with a new system? I'm not arguing against this one, although getting rid of spell slots, that's fine. First of all, go with the gods. You can do what you want. Great thing about this game, we can make anything we want and that's outstanding. But the, to me, the criteria is what does this system offer that the core system doesn't already offer? Why would I wanna do this instead of what exists? And it's gotta be significantly better than what currently exists for me to want to add a new system in or modify an existing system. I, I don't like to do it, right? Because now I've got to teach it to my players. I've got to learn it myself. It's probably not, it may not be as well tested as other things. There's a bunch of edge cases to it. And, and this is, I come up with systems, right? So I have like theater of the mind guidelines that I offer up. And what I realize is like coming up with a whole new system sometimes isn't as, is not as good as just saying, I'm just going to describe to you distances. So really ask yourself if this system is better than what exists and really offers something that is far and away better. We love to tweak stuff. We are, we, and, and DMs and players alike love to, to manipulate the mechanics and play with it and come up with things and try things. I see it all the time on Reddit. I see it all the time. Adventures will have entirely new systems, but just ask yourself, is it really making the game better? Is it really helping us share stories? What would I offer for a system? Guidelines, if you do, is I wanna know that it's rooted in the way that 5e already runs. I wanna know that it's part of the way 5e already runs. If it's something completely new, I, I, there better be a real good reason for it. And I don't know what that would be. I don't even need, hey, flying around in a dragon airship. I can figure that out with skill checks. So I would be careful about the supplement. You know, try them out and see, but ask yourself, is it really, is this really something that's important for the fun of the game? Or am I just m messing around with the system? I don't know if that's a great answer to your question. I don't have whether the guidelines for concise, just tying it to the existing system is probably what I want and keeping it as simple as possible. But I think screwing with the player's interpretation of 5e is not great because they might not be into it like you're into it. And now they got to learn a whole new thing. And it's far easier to say, make a skill check. Yeah, that, that's my, I, 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 I'll turn, alternatively run a different system right? Try something completely different. Anthony B says, I'm running a campaign soon for the first time. and won't be a module. I don't plan on running it past nine to 10th. Is it okay to figure out a potential array of who the big bad might be? Or should I leave some breadcrumbs out and see where the party's interests take them? I think fronts. So we talk about fronts, which I'm describing as villains. I don't see any problem thinking about who your villains are for a campaign, particularly if it's only like 10th level. Yeah, I think coming up with some villains are great. I think that's part of the campaign and in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, I offer up that part of our campaign process should be thinking about who the villains are. And, and sometimes a villain isn't a, a, a conscious entity, but it could be a storm or it could be a moon coming down and crashing down the planet. So I think, yeah, I think coming up with a central villain can be, can work really well. Like I think the players knew that they were going to, that a Sararak was a major villain. And I think many of the hardcover adventures, they tell you up front who the villain is going to be. And the players know it, even if the characters don't. So yeah, I don't think, I don't see there's any problem coming up with who the big bad might be. And I think you can run, you can still put breadcrumbs out there, but you can still have a general idea about where the adventure is going to be. Now, in my Eberron game, I had a villain that I really liked, but I didn't know if they were going to be the villain throughout the whole adventure or not. They could have died early on, uh, or they could end up being an ally. So the complex villains that can change their role in an adventure can be fun too. So don't wire them. It's unlikely that you're going to ally with Orcus. Although I did have a group who, who made uh, uh, Loth their quest NPC uh, in high tier, high level 4E game. So you never know who's going to be. So 
I think that it's, but that to me is a good, that's a good activity. It's a good DM activity. There's things that are worthwhile for DMs to spend their time and attention, in my opinion, in my, in my experience, that spending time thinking about your villains and what they're doing and what they want and where they're going and what quests they're working on is a really good brain activity for a DM. Where like rebuilding a new monster from scratch or thinking about how the players are going to go through the storyline are not, right? Because they're not necessarily going to do what you want them to do. But that idea, I, I like to think of it as thinking through the eyes of your villain. I have articles and videos where I talk about thinking through the eyes of your villain. What, where are they? What are they doing right now? What do they want? What quests are they undertaking? How are they reacting to what the characters are doing? That is a really good exercise, I think, for DMs. Crasher G, do you manage player bases in any way? If you do, do you use a supplement to go along with it? Do you have a lazy way of managing it? I, boy, yes, I have a lazy way of managing it, which is I don't really manage it. I make it up on the fly and I'm not great about it. There are, of course, uh, Strongholds and Followers by Matt Colville is a whole book about how to build strongholds like this and on accessories and building up like the, stuff like that. And I'm sure there are numerous supplements that talk about how to build up strongholds. I think the players, the Dungeon Master's Guide has the costs for building up locations and stuff like that. And I would recommend using those. I don't have a system uh, that I use. And I do love player bases. I almost always have one in games that I run. And it might be just like you have a manor now that's your manor. And I ask them, like, how do you want to? It's when you get into like how much money it costs. Well, now you're just playing it by ear. And the best thing I think I could offer up is that the Dungeon Master's Guide has stuff in here. Uh, I will uh, do a quick advertisement for my Patreon. In my Patreon, we have a, a PDF called Sly Flourish's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2. This is all new stuff that's similar to what's in the companion, but not in the companion. And one of those is like costs for home based stuff that I put together. It's loose and that might have some problems about like things that are too expensive and things that are too cheap, but it is a one page guide of like how much some mundane and fantastic upgrades would be to a location that goes all the way up to half a million gold. So that way you can burn a lot of gold on this stuff. Meredith S asks, how do you manage the character creation process for new players? I believe in the past you have mentioned that you keep the whole process to around two hours. I don't know where I mentioned that. What do you tell your players ahead of time to bring to the table? How do you keep the whole process moving efficiently in order to get to play a little during the first session? Good question. Uh, I think I have an article and a video about this that I will link in the show notes where I talk about how to, how to bring new players into the game. And this is advice that I've heard many times from many different, many different DMs. And the advice that I often heard and, and that I agree with is you really teach them the core mechanic, teach them about rolling a D20, adding a modifier and meeting a, a difficulty class. I would probably start with a pre-gen character unless the player is really interested in building a character from scratch. And if they are, your session is mostly going to be about building that character. Ideally, working with a new player with a pre-gen character, and there are many different good pre-gen characters, the starter set pre-gens, I have Fantastic Adventures pre-gen characters that, that go from first to fifth level right on the page. I think that Starting with a pre-gen, you can outline things. These are your attribute checks. When I ask for an ability check, you can look at this and then roll and add that number to it. But you just start with the core mechanics. Start with just an, a general take on what it, playing D&D means and then get into the game and keep it a nice, simple, straightforward game. I might not start with combat if you're just starting out. You might instead start with a conversation and roll some role-playing, like negotiating for a job at the inn. And... It gets somebody into the game. They can see what the transaction is like between the DM and the player. They can roll a couple of checks. They can get there. 
And then you might have them like, now you're off on the caravan and you're getting attacked by goblins and, and here's how to handle that. Make it easy. You only have a couple of goblins, right? If you can do one-on-one, that works really well. It's a little harder if you have a group already and you're bringing a brand new player. You probably want to spend some time with that brand new player before the game begins. And having a couple of people that have never played before, that can work too. But throwing them in the middle of a game, I'll tell you this, don't start them at a higher level than first level. And if you're playing first level, be real nice to them because it's really easy to die at first level. But I would not say, oh, let's get you the third so that you're a little bit meatier and that way you can survive because now you got subclass stuff to describe, right? So I would start with the core mechanic. I think this is what I offer up in the video, but I think the video I did better research than just me off the top of my head. Start with the core mechanic and get into the game as fast as you can and probably use a pregen so that you can show them things on the pregen. And then when they're into it and you say, do you want to make your own character? Then they can build their own character. And I think that can work out. So hopefully, hopefully that helps. But I will link to, I will link to the video uh, in the show notes for this video or this podcast, depending on how you're listening to it. Rangdo, someone commented that they love the lore changes in the world of D&D that Fizzbands brings in. The current DMG, however, starts with creating a world of your own. Is the increasing number of interlocking options with each new publication turning the setting assumptions of the mechanics into a single implied setting with the only freedom being to relabel your Forgotten Realms Xandria or whatever. Is D&D becoming less flexible? I ask as a traumatized survivor of the 90s meta plot fad. Uh, good. Oh, hey, Rangdo is here. So Rangdo, do you, do you think you know what my answer is going to be already? It's a trick question because I, I know what my answer is going to be and it's probably not going to be that different than things I said before. And the answer is you get to decide what you want to bring. And, and, and Watsi is not your boss. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Watsi doesn't control your world. I thought it was funny because when I talked about Fizzbands and I originally did my review of Fizzbands, I said, it's funny that they're creating this first world and that's all other worlds spawn from this first world, which means Watsi owns your homebrew campaign. And, and that way they have control over your homebrew campaign. And it's like, no, you don't. My world goes beyond that. So the reality is... You know, you get to choose whatever. First of all, DMs do this all the time. More than half of DMs are running their own campaign settings. They're not using any part of the, the, the lore from D&D necessarily, or they're just taking what they like. They're usually coming up with their own stuff. Is it making it less flexible? No. And the reason why is we have books, right? We, we have physical books with pages and they can't change that. They can make a new edition. They can put out new supplements. They can do all kinds of stuff, but we've got the books and we can do whatever we want. The only area where this comes in that, bother, that where I think things can get less flexible is online tools. And the, what we were talking about earlier, that online tools migrate to new things and, and the old things go away. And I think that is far more, my, my biggest concern is that the, the reliance that people have for digital tools can cause inflexibility. And I think it's important. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do about that because people just love it. Like D&D Beyond is really good. I'm using it for this show. I use it for all kinds of stuff. And and it changes. So when they decide to change things in D&D Beyond, it changes for everybody. Um, that worries me more than like the new supplements that are coming out because we get to decide, we, d- we get to decide what's in there. So is it becoming, it's not becoming any less or more flexible than D&D has in the past. I'm trying to think if there was anything, like I, I would say with fourth edition, one of the things about fourth edition is it was pretty hard to run fourth edition without an online tool, right? Like you really wanted to have an online tool for that game. And that had all the new supplements and stuff like that. And there were so many changes to 4E that occurred. It was really hard not to embrace some of those changes. But even later on, we could do things like say, I'm running an essentials only campaign. We're not going to use stuff from the original books. We're using only essentials quality stuff. And we were able to do that. So that meant that there was flexibility for us to be able to m- morph and change how our campaigns ran, even in 4E, which was heavily online or heavily using online tools. 
So I don't think it's any more or less flexible than it was in the past because they're books. I think let's pretend they came out with a new version of D&D and it was subscription only and you had to go to the D&D website and sign up and they would change things and they would patch stuff all the time. Now that's not flexible. That's inflexible like a video game is inflexible, right? Whatever they decide to change in the video game and that's not going to fly. People are going to want physical books. So I wouldn't worry about that. But that would be an example where the flexibility is lost. So to me, the answer is it's real easy to get caught up. I think I've seen this. I've seen this on Reddit. I've seen this in other places. Is we're in the zeitgeist, right? There's a bunch of us who love D&D and we spend lots and lots of time on it. And we're caught up in the zeitgeist. So every new book we take and we read and we absorb and we, we talk about it and we read what other people think about it and we do all this stuff and we see how people are playing it online. And we get caught up in it like that matters. <laughs> when the reality is it's six people sitting around a table. That's the only thing that matters, your game. Whatever's happening on the zeitgeist, you can either let it wash right past you. I hope Lord Gazumba's still in the chat. Lord Gazumba's still playing, I don't even know what edition, right? I think Lord Gazumba, what edition of D&D are you playing these days on your Twitch show, which is a really awesome Twitch show. If you guys haven't seen Lord Gazumba's show, you should take a look at his setup and his show because it's really awesome. It's a 1E2E hybrid with a lot of customized rules. So here's a guy playing with you know his friends that he's been playing with for decades he's got an incredible gaming setup he's got an incredible streaming setup he interviews all kinds of people that 41 years he's been playing and he's playing first and second edition right first and second edition combined together with a bunch of his own house rules that's flexibility and it doesn't matter what fifth he does i'm, I'm sure lord gonzuba was really crushed when he found out about the first world in fizz bands right the answer is no <laughs> right it doesn't matter right? You can pick what he wants. So that is, this is why we love this game as much as we do. It's because we can play whatever we want and we can change it however we want. And I'm not that worried about what the new version of D&D is going to come out with because whatever they do, I still have the current one and I'll probably love parts of the new one. I may just love the new one whole cloth and just say, yeah, I'm, I'm switching. But if I really don't like it, if there's something about it I really don't like, they go some direction I really don't dig. They can't take it away and they can't take away old school essentials. They can't take away first and second edition. They can't take away us making our own games. So that, that to me, I don't, I think the only inflexibility we have is in ourselves, right? The only inflexibility in the system is what are we willing and not willing to pass on? And I've gotten feedback on this, right? I've gotten people that have said that you're being a little too loose with this idea and that there are certainly times like players have expectations about what you're going to run and new players. If you're running, if you're going to a local game shop and running for new players, they're going to have expectations about what you're going to run. And it's hard to manage those. And that's true, right? It's not perfectly frictionless. But the reality is you're, if you're the DM, you're the one running the game. You're the one doing a lot of the work to get the game together. And you get to pick what you're going to, you're going to get to pick what you're going to allow and not allow. If you're an organized play and adventures league, it's a different story. And you're playing with the adventures league rules, but you're also making that choice. They didn't draft you and you can decide, no, you know what? I'm going to run my own games anyway. I did. I ran a bunch of adventures league games first in the local game shop and then slowly just let the adventures league stuff go away. I was still running all published modules, but the Adventures League rules were so weird at the time that I was like, never mind, we're just going to play homebrew. And we've been playing homebrew ever since, and it's been fine. Thank you, Rando. I hope that answered your question to your satisfaction. My friends, this has been an awesome time. As always, thank you all very much for hanging out with me, watching the YouTube video or listening to me on the podcast. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. We'll see you next week and get out there and play some D&D.